we have, and again, let me say, we have kids who are PhDs, our alumni. We have kids who couldn't graduate from high school. Um, kids in government, teachers, ministers. We have criminals. We have dead kids. Um, and it's those dead kids that, I don't want to say they haunt us, because they don't haunt us, but they are always with us. Hey Islanders and welcome to episode 109 of the Camino Voice. Today I speak with the owner of the Yakima Fruit Market located in Bothell. Please welcome Karen Pogue. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson and you're listening to the Camino Voice podcast where I interview folks around Camino Island and beyond. If you want to stay up to date on events, businesses, and even hear a little history of this area, Subscribe to this podcast and share with your friends. Thanks for listening. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of Commando Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday. Uh, except for last Tuesday, I apologize. I was out that week sick, uh, so I wasn't able to get my podcast posted. But we're back this week with episode 109, so thanks for coming back, guys. Um, on this episode, I got to speak with Karen Pogue, who is the owner of, uh, or her and her husband are the owner of the Yakima Fruit Market in Bothell. Uh, so you don't have to go all the way over to Yakima for it. And they've owned this business. This business has been going for uh, uh, over 80, or uh, let's see, uh, on, it's going on 80 years, uh, which is just incredible. They, they were not the founders. They bought it from uh, her husband's parents. Um, but it's a great, uh, we got to stop there and get some fruit. They're actually friends of my in-laws. Uh, they've known them for a while. And then they have a house here on Camino Island. So I was like, well, yeah, uh, let's get them on the podcast. So, um, so I got to speak with Karen today and just, uh, we got to talk about um, what she's seen, how, what, what changes has she seen in the workforce? Because a lot of the people they bring on are young people. Um, they bring on young people that come on for a summer and then they move on. Uh, and they've been doing it for so long, they've seen generations of high schoolers and um, young adults come through their stand working. And so we got to talk a lot about that, of what are some of the changes you've seen, she's seen in young people um, generationally? Like, what does she feel like has changed? And what kind of things have stayed consistent and the same as, as we've gone through that? Um, we also get to hear about the, the founding of the fruit market and, um, and stuff like that. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Karen Pogue. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Commando Voice. Today, I'm here with the owner of the Yakima Fruit Market. Welcome to the podcast, Karen Pogue. Thank you, Brandon. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about Karen. Well, I am Karen, spelled K-A-R-I-N, not to be confused with the K-A-R-E-N of internet meme infamy. <laughs> I am not someone who wants to speak to the manager. <laughs> Very cool. All right. So uh, where did you end up growing up? I was born in Cedar Woolley, Washington in the last century, and that was during a time when the name Cedro Woolley was code word for insanity, unstable people. <laughs> I didn't know that, really, although I had friends whose parents worked at Northern State Mental Hospital, and Northern State was a big employer for Cedro Woolley. And I had an aunt who was a patient there off and on through the years. It didn't have a pejorative connotation to me. 
until our family moved to Bothell and in fourth grade, the teacher was asking the class to go around and say where you were born. And when I said Cedro Woolley, a chorus of snickers arose from oh, no. all the 10-year-olds ten, ten in the class because even at age 10 back then, they knew Cedro Woolley was kind of a goofy place. Yeah. But I, I only lived in Cedro Woolley till I was four. My dad was a teacher at Cascade Junior High. And when he heard the exciting news that the newly formed North Shore School District was paying teachers $300 a month, which was crazy money for a teacher back then, we pulled up stakes and moved to Bothell in 1960. So wow. I grew up in Bothell, spent my summers with the family in Cedar Woolley. So I feel like I have two hometowns. Yeah, very cool. Man, Cedar must feel so different now for you when you go back. It does. Most of the family doesn't live there anymore, which is a complete flip-flop from my childhood. Yeah. And I do go to the cemetery to visit my relatives now. Yeah. All right. Um, all right, so you moved to Bothell, um, and then did you end up uh, uh, going to college, or what did you do after high school? I graduated early from high school, dear old Bothell High School. I was a very good student. I enjoyed school, but... By 17, I was itching to get out of there, jumped um, into a part-time job at my boyfriend's parents' business, which was the Yakima Fruit Market in okay. Bothell, and saved up enough money so that by summer of 1974, I could attend summer quarter at Shoreline Community College. I could pay for it myself because tuition was 90 bucks. Books for all my classes were maybe $50.00. And I had a really hot 68 Mustang 289. <clears throat> and so I worked my part-time summer job and went to Shoreline with high expectations of breezing right through my first two years and transferring to Seattle University. However, I flunked out my first quarter. Dear old Bothell High School had not prepared me for the academic rigors of Shoreline Community College. So I took a break and started working full-time at the fruit market, and then when, when that wasn't going to be a realistic fit for a grown-up young woman, I found a job downtown Seattle in Pioneer Square as a bookkeeper secretary for a financial services company that had been in business since before the Great Fire of Seattle. Okay. And wow. it was an awesome job. I learned the finest 19th century bookkeeping methods. I literally wrote in a two foot by 18 inch ledger every day each of our transactions. I might as well have had a, <laughs> a quill pen and an inkwell. And it was wonderful. And the founder of the company's son was an 86-year-old man who still came to work every day. Wow. And he had been friends with, for instance, Joshua Green and Eddie Bauer. And it was a wonderful, wonderful five years that I stayed at that place. Okay. Very cool. So you didn't have any experience in that upon starting there, right? No, but back in those days, if you were a female and you graduated from high school, you were pretty much qualified to make the coffee and write in the ledger with your quill pen and file things. And so that was, I got the job through a friend. Okay, very cool. Um, so where did you go after that then? After that, I decided my best career move 
would be to marry the boss's son at the fruit market. But, you know, I had, I had loved him since I was 12 years old. Wow. Apparently one day I came home from sixth grade and told my mom that I just met the boy I'm going to marry. <laughs> so we did marry when he was 20 and I was 19. Okay. And I kept working at the financial services company in Seattle, and he kept working for his parents at the fruit market. And eventually I got the bug to go back to Shoreline, but now I'm working full-time, and yeah. they did not really offer flexible commuter hour classes. Yeah. So I could take a 7 a.m. class each quarter, and sometimes there would be a 6 p.m. class I could take. So it took me a long time <laughs> to <laughs> earn that two-year degree. And I did eventually transfer to Seattle University, but by that time we had a toddler. And so that was, it was logistically and financially a stretch to have daycare and me not working anymore and go to Seattle U. But I was hooked with that first quarter at Seattle U. It was so much above and beyond what I expected. However, tuition was $1,100 a quarter, and we blew our life savings on that first quarter. Oh, wow. So I had to step back for a while and go back later. I didn't graduate until I was 28. Okay. And then because we hadn't been able to afford the extra daycare, I did not follow through with getting a teaching certificate because I, we couldn't afford to put four-year-old Chris in daycare all day. Right. So I couldn't do student teaching. I couldn't do classroom observation. But I said to myself, just get this English degree, and later on you can go back and finish up. So I graduated with my worthless English degree <laughs> and had no career prospects, so we decided, let's have another kid. <laughs> so that was my next career move, and our little baby son, Wynn, was born, and nine months later, to our great shock and horror, <laughs> we were signing papers at the bank for an unimaginable sum of money, and we were buying the fruit market from my husband's parents. Wow. And that began the worst year of our lives. Oh, no. <laughs> what happened? Well, you know, we were 30 at that time, and we thought, having both worked at the fruit market for so long, and being 30, and having a lot of family support, we thought we would be able to do this thing no problem. But what we didn't realize was that the skills we had gained working at the fruit market and the skills I had gained in the 19th century office with my quill pen and inkwell didn't really translate into owning the business. Yeah. Yeah, I knew, knew how to make a pretty display out of beautiful peaches, but you know, managing a payroll, hiring people, negotiating contracts, all that was beyond our ken. Yeah. And so, so let's um, let's go back a little bit then. So, as you were going down this career path, what was your husband doing during that time period? Well, Stuart, please forgive me because I'm going to tell the truth. He was coming home from work every day and collapsing in tears, because that's how difficult and stressful and unprepared we both were. Yeah, and then. Um, so was it while you were going, while you went to school? He's, um, he remained with his parents at the fruit market the whole time. The whole time yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And then um, the other thing is it's called the Yakima Fruit Market, but it's in Bothell. Yes. We, are, come around. we always have to say it's the Yakima Fruit Market 
in Bothell. So in 1938, there was a man um, who had a milk delivery route. So he had a large truck, and his job was to go around to the various dairy farms in Bothell, and Bothell was a dairy farming community, and he would pick up the uh, huge galvanized tubs of milk that the farmers produced each day, and he would take them to the processing plant. Well, that really wasn't paying his bills, so he needed to find a second gig, and he thought, well, I already have this truck, and we have a home on Bothell Way with a lovely commodious porch. I'm going to drive to eastern Washington, fill my truck up with produce, bring it over to my front porch, and my wife, Marie, is going to sit on the front porch and sell this stuff to everybody driving by on Bothell Way. So it took a couple years, and suddenly they realized that, hey, this is a going concern. He dropped the milk route, and it became Yakima Fruit Market, because primarily he went to Yakima to source his produce. Wow. Okay. So it started as a little... A house side project. And <laughs> yes, and that house even has an interesting history. It had formerly been a roadhouse. Okay. So where the fruit market is situated on Bothell Way is on the outskirts of Bothell. It's not in downtown Bothell. Mm -hmm. um, and Bothell Way is a road that connects Seattle to Bothell, and then the Bothell Everett Highway picks up and takes you from Bothell to Everett. But that stretch of Bothell Way during prohibition was kind of notorious for having roadhouses, speakeasies, houses of ill repute, <laughs> which all coalesced in the one building that was at the fruit market property. It was an inn called the Blue Swallow Inn. Okay. It was a bar and dance floor downstairs, and then there was a number of very small bedrooms upstairs. <laughs> and so it did make the perfect family home when the Lynches moved into that property because by then Prohibition was over, uh, all the nefarious activities had vacated, and it was a nice family home. Wow. Very cool. That's so cool because, like, to, that it's, the history continues to build upon itself within the house. Yes, that's right. And in 1950, you know, after the... Yakima Fruit Market had been going for quite a while, they decided, hey, let's ditch this ramshackle old building and put up a new modern fruit stand. So they did. In 1950, they tore it down and built the fruit market pretty much as you see it today. Okay. It's still ramshackle. And, <laughs> and of course, by now, so much time has elapsed between 1950 and now that it has re-ramshackled itself. <laughs> Very cool. So, um, so Stuart, your husband, was working there throughout the entire time. Yes. And was he really just doing, like, working as a front, front desk and stuff, or was his parents kind of teaching other aspects of it as they were going along? He actually worked for the man who owned it before his parents did it. That man actually was just leasing it from Ken and Marie, and he and his elder sister and his elder brother all worked for Roger, who went on to start Sunny Farms in Squim. Oh, okay. Um, but Stuart worked for Roger, and he did things then that were illegal then, and they're still illegal. He worked from 10, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. doing cleaning and night stocking, and there were no doors, so the fruit market was completely open, and after all the bars closed, 
he would be inundated with the inebriated patrons wanting to buy a peach or a watermelon, so he'd have to stop his sweeping and hosing and sell fruit to drunk people in, in the wee hours. Wow, that's crazy. So, um, and then you guys, you said you met at 12, and yes. when did you actually guys start dating then? Um, in high school, we started dating. I think we were juniors in high school. He didn't realize how much he needed me, but I made sure, <laughs> I made sure that I set the hook and reeled him in. Very cool. Nice. And so how long have you guys been married? I can't do the math. We were married in 1976. It might be 45 years. I don't know. Very cool. Well, congratulations. Thank that's, you. That's we have great. two sons. They're 40 and 35. Okay. Nice. All right. So then, <clears throat> so going back then, you guys bought the fu fruit market. Um, and so had Stuart not really, had he gotten, like, did his parents not teach him a lot on the, like, the, the contract stuff? Or was he still in the front end? Well... I can sympathize much more now with his parents wanting to hold everything close to the chest. Mm -hmm. um, but it would have been a lot more helpful had we both been tutored a little bit on the backside of the market. Um, he was just not really taught much of the ropes other than doing display work, unloading trucks, telling other people what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So then as you guys got into that, what was kind of your first, like, how did you guys start picking that up? Like, um, like when you guys got your first kind of negotiation? Oh, it was all crisis management. Uh, we lurched from one new horrible experience to the next. Um, we didn't know how to prioritize problems, so everything was new to us, and every new situation seemed catastrophic. And even though we could talk to his parents, and even though my siblings helped out, his siblings helped out, it was a very difficult learning curve. But by, by about year six, <laughs> you know, we we'd kind of figured out the nuts and bolts. Yeah. So how, as you guys were kind of getting that then, what was the most difficult aspect of, of learning all of those things? It was all difficult. It's very hard to single out anything. Um, it's difficult to have a family business. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody wants to stake out their turf, but everybody has opinions on everything. <laughs> so you step on the toes of the people you love the most. Yeah. And that's probably the hardest part. Yeah. Yeah, our, our background, um, I mean, we, we purchased the marketplace from my dad uh, in end of 2019. Um, and then my brother-in-law and sister purchased the coffee roaster company from my dad uh, before us in 2019. And um, so we had been working all kind of in a family business. And then it was passed on, you know, we, we moved it to the next generation. And so thankfully we did have some pass down. Um, and, but it is, there's just so much on every day of things that you don't think about, things that... I don't know, every problem that happens is your problem yes, <laughs> to deal with. that's right. Um, and, um, you know, there is that family aspect of making sure that everyone feels like they're heard and, and yes. understood. And, and that, is, that is definitely a, a challenge as you're moving through all of this. Yeah, and every Sunday dinner you might have at Grandma's house, it's a meeting of the board of directors, you know. 
So it the lines get blurred. Yeah. And were the parents, were Stuart's parents still, um, were they constantly speaking in, both good and bad, were they both have opinions on how you guys were running it? I know they were proud of us, but no, they really wanted to be done. And okay. so we could, we would go to them and ask for advice, but they really didn't offer unsolicited advice or, okay. yeah. Okay. Nice. So then as you guys were getting all that, then were the other siblings speaking in some? Uh, my husband's youngest sister worked for us for a number of years while she went through college. Mm -hmm. And uh, all of my brothers worked at the market with us as they went through college and followed their various career paths. So it that sibling aspect was very nice. Okay, nice. Um, okay, so you guys, at this point, you guys were still living in Bothell then, right? Yes, we never moved from the home that we stepped over the threshold as newlyweds. We're, okay. We're still in the house that my husband bought from his grandparents in 1975. Wow, okay. So then, <clears throat> what's your guys' connection to Kameno then? Oh, well, as a child, my family did a lot of tent camping, and so Kameno Island, being the no-ferry island, was a great choice. We went to Kameno Island State Park many a time, and I didn't know this at the time, but apparently Kameno had a nickname, Little Bothell. Really? Yes, so many people from Bothell have you know, summer cabins or even year-round homes here. But that didn't play into our our uh, our decision to find a place here. After maybe, I don't know, seven or eight years of owning the market, we were in a good position to buy an inexpensive piece of property mm -hmm. because that house, I told you, that we moved into in 1975 had been purchased very cheaply in part because it had no foundation. Mm. The roof was the original 1936 roof. Mm -hmm. The water was not city water or even well water. It was a pipe stuck into a spring on the hill oh, in no. the woods behind our house. <laughs> um, we had no central heating. The toilet was falling through the floor. So it was a real good deal. <laughs> And we did spend most of our early years and every spare penny we had rehabilitating that house. Okay. But we didn't have a huge mortgage, and we paid for things as we went, as we could afford them, and we just made do so that by the time we'd owned the market for six or seven, eight years, I had a mania. And that mania was, I really want to have a piece of waterfront property. Yeah. And I don't want to be tied to a ferry and I don't want to drive too far, and gosh, Camino Island is 45 minutes from my door. I think we should have a piece of property on Camino Island. Yeah. And my poor husband was reluctantly dragged, kicking and screaming, <laughs> on our first property venture. So we loaded up our young sons into my Dodge Caravan, which, as you know, is the ultimate soccer mom vehicle. Yeah. But my Dodge Caravan... It was special. Um, I've always been a fan of flame art, 1950s car art. Mm -hmm. So my 1989 Dodge Caravan, the first new car I ever had, 
was custom painted by a sign painter in Bothell with a beautiful flame job that <laughs> covered the hood and came along the side panels. And the flames on the side panels ended with swirling strawberries and melons and ears of corn. It oh, was cool. a thing of beauty. And I will say, I think I was an art car pioneer. And I need also to tell you that my husband, Stuart, while not a hippie, has long hair okay. and has always had long hair. So here we are, we're piled into my flaming fruit mobile. I'm driving, my husband has his long flowing hippie locks. We have two dirty little boys. <laughs> we drive to Stanwood. Oh, look, here's a real estate office. Oh, look, his marquee says waterfront, cabins, beachfront. And he's got pictures of all these enticing properties and we know we're looking for a ramshackle cabin. Yeah. And oh boy, his window is loaded with all these lovely, affordable, ramshackle cabins. So we pull right in. And we all tumble out of the car and we go inside the office. And I make the first move. I go up to the only person who's in the office. And he's a gentleman probably in his 60s. And I introduce myself and my husband. And I explain that we're business owners from Bothell. And that we are looking for a a lower-priced waterfront cabin. Nothing fancy, mind you, just a, a cabin on Camino. And he folded his arms across his chest, and he said, no, I don't have anything like that. <laughs> and I did a double-take, and I pointed to the windows that was <laughs> plastered with photographs of exactly what we were looking for, and I said, but, but your marquee, the pictures... And he took a long pause, and he looked at me, and he said, No, I don't have anything for you. And I was just dumbfounded. I, I, <laughs> and in retrospect, I think, you know, maybe he thought we were some kind of, uh, I don't know, crazy, weird, alternate lifestyle freaks. What? Based on the paint job of my car and my husband's long hair, I guess. It's all I can figure. Wow. So I, I thought, okay, he's got nothing for us. So we drove on down the road, and now we're on Camano Island. And, oh, look, here's another real estate agency. Look, waterfront cabins, beachfront, high bank, low bank. Oh, they've got what we want. So we pull in there. And, again, we all tumble out of the flaming fruit mobile, and there's three women in the office, and I introduce myself, Karen Pogue, business owners, waterfront cabin, nothing fancy, and they kind of looked at us, and they said, Judy, Judy, come here, Judy, why don't you help these people? It's Judy's first day on the job. So I knew right then and there that they also somehow underestimated us, and they were just <laughs> throwing Judy at us because she needed to gain experience pointing out features to people. <laughs> but whatever, we followed Judy to Driftwood Shores, where okay. there was a little tiny, minuscule shack right on the beach, surrounded by nicer homes that were modest. They weren't McMansions. Yep. Um, and we looked at it, and it was practically level waterfront, had a cement bulkhead, seemed awesome, really, yeah. really ideal. I loved it, and I wanted to sign on the dotted line right there. But my husband said, oh, no, this is too nice. 
So Judy dutifully drove us to, I don't know where all we went, Taiyi, Telecom, who knows, I can't even remember. And we saw places that were, in fact, much worse than it had. <laughs> one had a bank that was falling into it, and one had a toilet on the back porch. It was falling through the floor, but of course we knew how to deal with toilets mm -hmm. falling through the floor. Um, and my boys really wanted that one with the toilet falling through the floor because in the shed of that cabin, it came with some 1940s water skis. Of course, we didn't have a boat or any water skiing experience, but my sons were, they were amped for that. And my husband said, no, no, these are all too nice. We can't have any of these. So I, we thanked Judy for her time, and I spent the rest of that summer driving myself around the island till I felt like I got a PhD in island real estate, low bank, high bank, medium bank. I could tell you where it was, what it <laughs> went for. And um, amazingly, or maybe not so amazingly, because it's not like today, at the end of the summer, that first little cabin we looked at was still for sale. Okay. So we went back to Judy and said, we're going to take that first place you showed us. And we were Judy's first sale. Very cool. Yeah, so that's how we ended up at Driftwood Shores. We have awesome neighbors. It's just a wonderful place to be. Yeah. Very cool. And then, so you guys have had that spot for a long time. Um, yeah. 30-some years. Okay. Yeah. Well, and do you guys kind of split time between the two, or how do you have you know, we're still working full-time, so we take our days off up here. Okay. So we're up here Monday afternoon through Wednesday mornings. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Very cool. And along the way, we persuaded my husband's parents to buy a place um, over by the state park, so they spent their final retirement years here on the island, too. Okay. And we... we encouraged a friend and his wife to buy a spot on Driftwood Shores. So we're helping return Camino Island to Little Bothell. <laughs> Very cool. Nice. So then, um, just for so people know, like I know we talked a little bit about it, but how long has the uh, Yakima fruit, stand, fruit market been going? Um, since 1938, so it's 83 years old. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. It is incredible. I hope that my kids and grandkids take it to 100, and I hope I get to see that. Yeah, very cool. Are they working in the business at all? Uh, our oldest son did work with us for 10 years, and then he needed to go pursue his music, and also to sustain himself, he became a contractor, and now segued his contracting business during the pandemic into a cabinet shop. Okay. So he works from home, he's got a wonderful shop, and he does that, and his music. Nice. So you should look for the Chris Pogue band. Chris Pogue, all right. Yes. Very cool. Nice. And our youngest son does work with us, and both our daughter-in-laws work with us. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Cool. So they're still all in, involved yes. in, in the area and everything? Yes. Our youngest son, when he was having problems in junior high, we yanked him out of junior high for about half a day for the rest of I don't know, I think it was his eighth grade year. He was 14, and um, he often reminds us that as punishment, we made him come to work with us every day. So <laughs> that, That's a good punishment, I yeah. think. Yeah. Oh, nice. So then, <clears throat> um, um, obviously, we're kind of still a little bit still on COVID and stuff, but how did you guys cope with everything as COVID was hitting? Because you were also down more closer to the city, so that made it a little, little more intense down there. It was extremely intense. So our business is seasonal. We open every year 
on the first Wednesday of March. Okay. And our fruit season runs from that first Wednesday of March to about November 2nd or 3rd. And in February, um, there were beginning to be rumbles about this virus, but undeterred, I went up to Canada to Vancouver with some friends, and we had a great time. And we all came back a little bit sick, but we recovered. Um, and then, you know, the news about the virus was ramping up, and my husband and our son and daughters-in-law, we all discussed, well, what, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to open up? Can we open up? Well, yes, we are licensed as a grocery store, mm -hmm. so we are um, we're okay to open. Should we open? And I said, well, yes, of course we should open. And my husband, who is naturally more cautious and thoughtful, um, had grave reservations, but like normal, I bulldozed him, and <laughs> we did open, and for the first couple weeks in March, everything was fairly normal, mm -hmm. just like normal, and then it started getting serious, and um, people were very frightened and confused and angry, and they also, at the same time, while they were frightened, confused, and angry, they all wanted to shop outdoors where it was well-ventilated, and that describes the fruit market to a T. Yeah. It is an open-air market. We have a roof over us, but everything else is wide open. Yeah. So we picked up a lot of new customers that okay. had not ever bothered to investigate us before. And we're not everybody's cup of tea, that's for sure. But during the height of the pandemic, it was especially difficult to be everybody's cup of tea because people didn't really understand what the King County Health Department guidelines were. Right. And every day was a heaping of fresh horror and anger from yeah. people who told us we needed to be wearing gloves, that we were... Uh, being very unsafe by not doing this, that, or the other task that they invented for us to be doing that yeah. were nothing that the health department said. And in right. fact, the health department specifically contraindicated gloves for grocery store cashiers and produce workers. They said, do not wear gloves. Mm -hmm. There is not enough glove supply in yes. the supply chain for you all to be wearing gloves and it's not necessary. Right. But customers didn't really understand that. So we, we got a lot of grief over not wearing gloves. And to give you an example, and, and I have to back it up and say 99.9% .9 of our customers are wonderful, giving, thoughtful, lovely people. But it's that percentage that is not that yeah. causes all the grief. Yeah. And and here's a good example. So before the mask mandate was in effect, um, we did, we were like before the grocery stores, we put up some plexiglass screens at the checkout. Okay. Um, and those still are not a requirement of the health department, right. but we did it. Um, so we had one teenage employee cashiering and he said farewell to his last customer and greeted the next customer. And he began to ring up her items, place them on the scale, and she flipped out on him and screamed at him that he needed to sanitize everything, stop what you're doing. 
wipe the scale, the screen, come to my side, wipe this, do the electronics, you know, go wash your hands. And so he did all those things. In fact, he forgot that he had a bottle of sanitizer in the checkout, uh, bleach water. We had hand sanitizer at that time for customers. Um, he was so rattled by her anger mm -hmm. that he had to run and get the sanitizing cart, which is a big clunky cart with all the equipment, because he, he just freaked out and yeah. forgot. I've got the spray bottle and right. the paper towels right here. Um, so he did all that to her satisfaction, but of course she wasn't satisfied, and she went away still yelling at him. The next customer steps up, and our employee now is stricken with fear, and he grabs the bleach water spray bottle and begins to spritz the counter, the scale pan, and everything, and that customer yells at him, get that blankety-blank-blank blank away from my produce. So here we have the two ends of the tolerance yeah. spectrum. Yeah. And that was what we faced every day. Yeah. 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 I mean, being retail, we, we <clears throat> faced similar. We, we definitely had this. There was one day where we had, I mean, social media was like, we were like, why are we even on it during this time? But yes. we would get comments from people and we would get emails. And, and one day we got an email that were stacked on top of each other in my inbox. The first one was, I can't believe you guys aren't doing this, this, and this, wearing, like, you guys are not wearing your mask properly, or you don't have enough, and, like, all this different stuff. And then the one right below it was, I can't believe you guys are buying into this stuff. You guys are wearing your mask. Those are not useful. And I was like, can I just send them to each other and be like, hey, guys, work it out. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, we got turned, quote, turned into the health department three times by customers who were angry that we had let them down in some regard or the other, and each time resulted in an undercover examination by the health department at our store, and each time um, the health department told us, good job, guys, you're doing everything. You yeah. know, we had the floor marked off at six-foot intervals. We had signs. We had sanitizing stations, mm -hmm. wipes. We had protocol for employee wellness, protocol for sanitizing. Yeah. Yeah, the whole nine yards. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will say the uh, Island County Health and everything did a really good job as far as like communicating with us. They would they would come down and um, uh, and the the currently I think she's still the currently she would come down and be like, look, like I've checked, you guys are doing everything right. Um, was super great and and very helpful with all of that. So yeah, um, I. You know, I a lot of times like when it comes to government stuff, it's like, ah, oh, having to deal with all the protocols and stuff. But like they were definitely put through the ringer on this this round. Yes. And um, you know, all of them. I was like, I would hate to be in your shoes and you guys are doing a good job for what you guys have to deal with right now. Well, you're much more charitable than I am. <laughs> well, Island County I think had some like they there was a lot of leaders in the community that like the fire chief, uh Levon uh, always get his name wrong, uh, Young, Young, Gowen, Young Gowen, sorry Levon, I got that wrong again, um, they worked with the community center and did a fantastic job of, um, they did their, the vaccination schedule and all that, or mm -hmm. the free vaccinations and mm -hmm. all that, uh, they were more organized and efficient than many other counties that had full hospital uses hospital staff like everything here was volunteer run yeah it was all done by volunteer nurses doctors and stuff and it went so well like yeah. other counties were coming to ours to see how they did to it learn so how could, to do it 
And yeah. so um, there were so many people in the, this community specifically yeah. that really stepped up. Well, I think when you get a grassroots effort like that, you know you have to get her done, yeah. and you can't rely on bureaucracy. Yes. Down there in King County, we had to rely on bureaucracy, and it was not pretty. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so... So then, as as you guys continued through that, then um, when it kind of went, I mean, we had the like full lockdown, like March, April, May ish. As it kind of reopened, did you guys kind of get reflooded back in with customers, or was it a slow trickle? What was it kind of like for you? We never stopped being busier than normal. Okay. And you will remember the hoarding issues with paper products and mm -hmm. bottled water and so on. Well. Even though we're a fruit market that has perishable goods, everybody decided this was going to be the year that they needed to be farmers and be self-sufficient. And so <laughs> our little nursery, it was all, and that's my department, it was all I could do every day to get more, 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 more veggie starts, tomato plants, you know, everything that everybody thought they were going to be sustaining their family with through this pandemic. Oh, I'm kind of curious like what those plants are now they're like oh we don't need them anymore we'll go back to the grocery yeah store. one wonders <laughs> oh all right so then um so you guys closed up in november again of last yes, year. yes and then got ready for our christmas tree season okay which is our normal thing um and there again should we shouldn't we trees fyi christmas trees are still in short supply um, climate change hasn't done any favors to that crop, and mm -hmm. also a lot of the older tree farmers are looking to retire, and young people are looking at that job and going, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. they're in short supply. It's We have some good suppliers, but they can't get us everything we need, and we kind of thought about not even doing the tree season, but we did, Yeah. and it went fine. Good. It, in fact, we were... Oh my gosh, we sold out earlier than ever. I want to say by December 15th, we had sold <clears throat> everything and could get no more. So we were closed on December 16th. Wow. Yeah, no, it is something. Um, we've got a few uh, U cut trees uh, mm -hmm. in this area that we go yes. to. And um, every year I feel like they're like, well, I don't know if we'll even open next year because we have to let the new sprouts catch up and then the older ones like, mm -hmm. um, and I feel like we've been hearing this for quite a while. Yes, you have been. So yeah, <laughs> it's been definitely been an issue. So mm -hmm. now we're of course running into all the other supply issues and right. it's always fine. But, yeah. <laughs> um, so then as you guys prepped to open for this year, <clears throat> how did that kind of, did it were you, of course, inundated with everything still? Or? Well, so this year, pre-opening, you know, it was, oh, we're going to have vaccinations available. Mm -hmm. And my husband, who is nine months older than me, qualified for a vaccine on the basis of his age, and I still did not. And he got very emotional about the unfairness of why should he get the vaccine, and I couldn't get it yet. And then there was that whole terrible scheme of signing up for it online. It was like the worst video game you ever played in your life because you were, you know, the the page you'd be on would time out and you, it was just horrible. Yeah. But my husband did get vaccinated and then because, because my dad is 91, 
I just kind of fudged my age a little bit, and Dad and I both got vaccinated at the Arlington Airport, which was awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that made us feel a little more confident going in. But we still had inter-family discussions because mm -hmm. we were not all on the same page about the dangers that we faced being frontline yeah. workers every day. Um, our children had varying opinions, and I don't want to say they felt coerced by us, but because mm -hmm. my husband and I had decided, well, heck yeah, we're just going to soldier on through this, they yeah. felt like they had to, um, when in reality I took both our daughter-in-laws off the schedule and said, you just figure out what works best for you. And by and large, they kept their normal schedules. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so then another question I had, because... I'm assuming at the fruit stand, you guys probably get, uh, like, tons of high schoolers and stuff that you guys see through your, um, through your, you know, the time yes. of employment with you. Over all of those years, what have been the biggest changes? Have there been big changes? Have you noticed anything yes. as you've seen so many generations of high schoolers come through? Yes, there have been big changes. Mm -hmm. Um, I hope the city of Bothell is not listening to this podcast because we have a lot more employees than I said we did on our business license, um, in part because today's teenagers, I can only work on Tuesdays and Thursdays between 127 and 345. <laughs> because I'm doing this, that, and the other every yeah. other day. Yeah. So it is difficult to get enough help, and it's difficult to get help, period. Mm -hmm. So, yes, we every year we employ a whole lot of teenagers, and it's really nice when we get kids that stick around through college. Yeah. Um, or when we when we get into a really good family and they have a bunch of kids to yes. send us year after year, we really like that. Although that can lead to problems when the whole family has to go on a vacation, right. and then you're down three workers. Yes. So, um, yeah, we've seen changes in the way that kids approach work. We've seen changes in the way they are prepared or not prepared to work. I had to teach one. 17-year-old boy how to use a broom this year because he had never swept anything. And then I discovered he was enthralled with sweeping, but he didn't understand that it was called sweeping. So sometimes he will say this to me, Mrs. Pogue, is there anything you want me to broom today? <laughs> yes, dear, I'd like you to go broom the parking lot today. So... Um, there's that, and what we really have seen is, and we don't know if it's a, a change, an actual change, or if people are just more willing to talk about it now, but kids today seem to have a lot more emotional issues than they did in the 1970s or even the 1990s when we first started hiring kids. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps they're just more willing to talk about their vulnerabilities. Perhaps um, the mental health system is better at identifying kids in crisis. Mm -hmm. um, but we did not used to see kids who had mental health counseling 
or kids who would approach us and tell us that they were suicidal or you know have other anxiety problems but right. now that's absolutely common yeah and we've had to learn how to deal with that mm -hmm. and adjust and and when the when the kids stick with us through a couple seasons we basically pretty much have to throw up our hands and just love them yeah. otherwise it doesn't really work and we seem to be a sweet spot for kids who need that extra set of parents. Yeah. So we have helped kids find housing when their parents kick them out. I have taken kids to their parole officer. Mm -hmm. I have taken kids to their 12-step meetings. Um, we have loved kids who are alcoholics. We went through a bad, bad spate of oxy and heroin use maybe 10, 12 years ago. That was a real bad epidemic for us, mm -hmm. but it was very eye-opening. Yeah. Um, we have, and I don't want to make it sound like our kids are riddled with problems, because I think anybody in any workplace would just have to look around, scratch below the surface, and you'd find these same issues. Mm, yeah. um, but with kids, they're more vulnerable, and you really need to pay attention yeah. and make sure they get the help they need. And who the heck are we, the pogues, <laughs> to help them? But you know, after your first couple tragedies, you realize you have to step up to the plate. We have. And again, let me say, we have kids who are PhDs, or alumni. We have kids who couldn't graduate from high school, um, kids in government, teachers, ministers. We have criminals. We have dead kids. Um, and it's those dead kids that, I don't want to say they haunt us, because they don't haunt us, but they are always with us. And I'm showing your viewers my tattoo that says, Local Boys. It's a really nice uh, tattoo with a color fade. And about, oh, 15 years ago, we had a cohort of young men who called themselves the local boys because they thought it was hilarious that they sold local fruit. They <laughs> thought it was hilarious that customers would come in and say, when are the local peaches here? When's the local watermelons here? So ha, 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 they were the local boys, and they spread their local boys graffiti all over Bothell, and that was their logo. <laughs> And sadly, um, two of those local boys are dead now. Uh, one actually was became a relative of ours through marriage. And he worked for us for about 10 years off and on and actually lived with us. He was very dear. I considered him a, a third son. And he committed suicide. And the other worked for us for 10 years. He was a college graduate. He had a... Toyota mechanic certificate. He loved history. He grew his own produce, canned fabulous pickles, <laughs> smoked his own meats, but he was an enthusiastic substance abuser. Mm -hmm. And in the end, that will catch up with you. Yeah. So we now um, try to make sure that we're very sensitive to the kids' emotional states, to their special needs, um, fortunately, we are seeing a big decline in addiction, so that's a real positive. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think, um, I mean, I, I think it's really cool the, the 
the environment that you guys get to work in there, uh, and we we have some of that here uh, at the marketplace, but it's one. It's there's a lot of moving pieces, um, and um, you know people are working all these different shifts, and I'm not necessarily working alongside, but. Um, the fact you guys get to work with these kids day in, day out through summer, and you're just right there with them throughout yeah. it. Um, you know, and I do think um, one of the things that my, my dad, uh, growing up and stuff, was always big on was mentorship. As far as, like, people need mentors. And, and that transition from your parents being your parents and then finding that mentor outside of that. Um, even when I was growing up, he was like, that, I've seen a massive decline in that, of kids being able to get that first job and their boss kind of being that next mentor to, to keep moving them along that. Um, and I think that's so important. You know, I had my, uh, my, my youth pastor leader at the time um, on the podcast recently and, and was talking with him and was like, yeah, you were my mentor during my high school years because it was that transition period of yes. like, well, I go to my parents for some things, but then I, I look for other mentors, and, and he was that, and he ended up actually marrying my wife and I. Um, but I just think that's so important. In society, it's so where you think you're connected because of social media and everything. Mm-hmm. and But you just don't get that direct mentorship to these kids that I think really need it. And it's so, there's just basic things you don't learn if you're not out in the world working and, and around people. Yes, you know, Absolutely. So. Yeah, and that, that's been the surprising joy of owning our business is, is being with the kids like that. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, so then as you continue to move forward, what's kind of, what do you see as the future as the, of the Yakima fruit market? I hope it stays on Balfa <clears throat> Way as a ramshackle little fruit market for the rest of my life, but I don't want to... I don't want to control my kids. I don't want to, as my husband says, reach out from the grave and tell them, <laughs> you must continue this burden. You must carry this forward. But I hope they do. Yeah. Our our oldest granddaughters are both 10, and <clears throat> they've started helping out. doing cool. Yeah, doing the kinds of things their daddies did when they were little kids. Yeah. Well, it's wonderful. That's that's great. I, it's it's so great to see generational family businesses continue on and yeah. um, see those next generation yeah. working there. So. Yeah, and we just survived a threatened land grab by Sound Transit, which wanted to turn Boffle away from five lanes into seven lanes. Wow. And that would have required them taking all of our parking lot and some of our building. <laughs> so that was a pretty horrific 18 months, but amazingly, and it is amazing and miraculous. Sound Transit decided, after 10,000 of our customers sent postcards and emails to them, that they really didn't probably need seven lanes just to drive a bus into Bothell. So we're safe. Very cool. Yeah. Well, nice. All right. Well, I'd like to end every podcast with some rapid-fire questions. So the first one is, what purchase of $100 or less have you enjoyed the most over the last three months? This shirt that I'm wearing, I walked into a woman's store in Laconer a couple weeks ago, plucked an XL size off the rack. Oh, it's, it's way too big. Got a large. This is still too big. Tried on the medium. It fit. <laughs> so between COVID-19 and the suicide of our loved one, I had uh, stuffed my face to console myself. And now I'm getting back on the right track. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. 
Um, you said in Laconer? Yes. Was that, was it, it wasn't Ladder's Clothing, was it? I can't remember what it was called. It's down by the bridge end of the street. Okay. Um, I just interviewed a gal uh, who owns, it's called Ladder's Clothing and Co., and they have a location in Stanwood, but um, during the pandemic, they opened a second one in Laconer. So. Um, I'm sure I went in there, too. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. All right. Uh, pretend you have a friend coming from out of town. What would the first day look like here? Well, it's going to take three days. <laughs> so the first day, I guess, we would stay on Camino. We'd get up and have some Camino Roaster coffee on the beach at low tide. We'd go look for beach glass. Then we'd maybe get in the car, and hopefully it would be a Tuesday where I could hit the senior discount at the food bank thrift store, and we'd do that, and then we'd do the other end of town, go into all those wonderful little shops, mm -hmm. go to the farm store, and uh, stop here for lunch and treats at the bakery, and tapped, and head on back to the cabin in time for high tide, get in a boat, go catch some crabs, and find dinner. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, who is an interesting or fascinating person in this community that I should interview next? Oh, please, please find Colton Harris Moore, the Barefoot <laughs> Bandit, because I think if he had worked for me, he would have been a local boy. And I know his attorney, John Henry Brown, mentored him <clears throat> after he was out of prison, and I would dearly like to know that Colton is doing well now. Yeah, very cool. All right. And lastly, what piece of advice would you give your 20-year-old self? So women of my generation were socialized to be compliant and helpful. And I would say that's okay to be compliant sometimes and helpful, but you need the component of looking out for your own interests first. I'm quite sure if Ted Bundy had asked me to help him load his sailboard on top of his Volkswagen bus at Lake Sammamish in 1974, I would have done it because, yeah, you, you just help people. That's what you do. But you need to look out for yourself. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Brandon. Yeah, this was great. All right. And Islanders, I will talk to you on the next one. Well, a big thank you to Karen Pogue for joining me on the podcast today. And thank you for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps us be found by other islanders like yourself. And for more information on this episode, you can go to CaminoCommons.com slash podcast. That's CaminoCommons.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.